Now you might be asking yourself, self, why would they be lazy on the long road to ruin starring your host, Mr. Mark Radlitz, and frankly, he's mortified, and replay Princes of the Universe when they could have just as easily uploaded Who Wants to Live Forever, which was also a part of the Highlander movies, instead of just repeating Princes of the Universe? And the answer to that question is simply, if the people who created the sequels to the original Highlander are going to be lazy about their movies, then I'm going to also be lazy about the music. Yes. I'm not going to bother uploading any more music to talk about the Highlander. I'm just going to keep replaying Princes of the Universe because that's about as much effort as these folks put into these sequels. Oive of Ismia. And the moron, and to uh, help me pick on these movies and their, uh, their lack of thoughtfulness, their laziness, their constant uh, covering of themselves, here he is, folks, my co-host, Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do, sir? Hi, everybody. I'm Sean. You're not, and you're listening to our show. Indeed they are. All right. So tonight, folks, uh, we're going to be looking at the second half of our Highlander series, Highlander the Sorcerer, which is part three, and Highlander 4, Endgame starring the hero of the Highlander TV series, Duncan McLeod, as played by Adrian Paul. And you might be asking yourself, Self, wasn't there a fifth Highlander movie? We don't talk about that here. Much like we don't talk about Terminator Salvation. Just, just, just don't worry about it. It doesn't exist. So tonight, that's what we'll be talking. We're going to discuss everything that is Mario Van Peebles, everything that is Adrian Paul, and that's where we leave you with the Highlander, ready to move on to bigger and better things. So, Sean, they a uh, couple of years after the horrendous sequel that was Highlander 2, they decided to get the thing back on track again with Highlander 3. What do we know about Highlander 3? What, uh, what, what, what made it infinitely better than Highlander 2? And that's not saying much. Well, for one thing, this makes actually faintly a modicum of sense when you really look at the plot. Um, so there's that. There's the fact that it actually feels like a movie and not so much like you're just watching some slapdash, thrown-together, weird fan film. But still, yeah, even that really didn't do it any favors uh, because much like... The first two films, yeah, it lost money and it lost it pretty damn badly. Uh, it was made on a budget of $26 million, made back 12.3 at the box office. Ouch. Um, it currently holds a 5% rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on 20 reviews. Um, and... Uh, Christopher Lambert has been quoted as saying that it's the real sequel to the original film, which it just, if that's the case, then it just further serves to prove that the original film never needed nor should have ever gotten a sequel in the first place. It was just fine as a one-off cult movie. I mean, it just, it, it closed everything up so perfectly. It left no loose ends. It was a self-contained, 
basically a, 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 a modern fantasy fairy tale, fairy tale story. It boggles me that somehow Highlander has gotten this many sequels and the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension, one of my favorite movies, thank you very fucking much, never got one. Um, it's just... All that we have here is... It's just like... It's, it's a weird remake. That's all that it is. It's, it's just... There's been talk for years about remake Highlander. Oh, we should remake Highlander. Hey, you know what they should do? They should remake Highlander. I hear they're talking about remaking Highlander. Hey, what do you think about that Highlander remake? Here's what I think about it. It happened, and it was the worst thing a movie can be. It was forgettable. I can at least watch Highlander 2 and make fun of it. I can at least watch the first Highlander and love every second of it, even the bugfuck weird... Uh, nonsense of Sean Connery's character. Um, I can sit there and be and be uh, entertained by Clancy Brown's Harlem Globetrotters broadsword antics. Um, I can be amused by Christopher Lambert's weird as fuck accent. Um, I can love every second of that fa- of that soundtrack. Well, such as there is an actual soundtrack. We covered that last week. Go listen to it. Um, but this one, it, it just, it's aping all of the plot points. It's bringing back one of the main players. It's referencing the plot of the first one, but it has none of the charm. I mean, short of aping one of the best action sequences in the first part, and the fact that you pretty much wasted the late and extremely great Mako in the first scene. Um, once you've seen it, well, that's it. You've seen it. It maybe makes the TV series look good. Um, <laughs> it managed to de- it, it did manage to somehow debut at number two in the box office in its in its opening weekend, and then dropped to number seven the following week. Um, I'd be really intrigued to know what it was opening against that it did that well. Um, But really, you know, before we really get into talking about the actual movie movie itself, um, oh, one other thing I will say about it. Um, Speaking from experience, congratulations. Uh, after watching this movie, you are going to get Dr. Feelgood so stuck into your thinky bit that you're going to want to claw your cerebellum out with an ice cream scooper. It felt like I was watching an episode of uh, Nitro. I'm like, why are they doing sound alike things? That's, that's Dr. Feelgood with no lyrics. Yeah, no, well, you know, then again, I've also never been a big 80s rock guy, so my comeback to that would be, yeah, well, at least Nitro ate good songs like Come as you like, come as you are, even flow, and uh, of course, smells like Teen Spirit. And Seek and Destroy. Um, Sting used to come out. Well, seek and no, well, no, they actually use Seek and Destroy. Use Seek and Destroy. I thought it was a sound alike because I don't remember them actually. I don't remember hearing any lyrics of Seek and Destroy. 
I don't remember hearing any lyrics, but I could, but no, I could swore they, uh, I think they might have actually gotten Metallica's permission to at least use the instrumental version. Um, yeah, when I think of the sound alikes, I think, of course, of DDP's awesome, just slightly varied use of Smells Like Teen Spirit, um, Jericho using a, a cocked-up even flow, and Raven using a, a cover of Come As You Are that's so similar, I can't believe WCW actually didn't get sued by Courtney Love for that. <laughs> Yeah, um, I want to I want to say this before you you get into the the movie. I know everyone says, "Oh, this is, this is too similar to the first one. It's almost a remake." I, I don't I don't want to think of it as a remake. Uh, I just feel, I feel like it was a sequel, and they made a lot of mistakes with they made the kind of mistakes with the sequel that many other films. This is not the first film in history to ape its predecessor. As if you know the writers and producers thought we have to do the same things, the same beats, and li- literally the same scenes over again because that's what people want. The pe- the people want Kurgan, they want the villain driving around the city like a crazy person. We have to do that exact same scene again. You know they don't want you know, this fear of going off the beaten path because people like what they like, and to to a degree that's true. Um, Robert Winfrey and I were talking last night in a review of Hotel Transylvania 2 that there's people who make arguments for, uh, you know, taking out taking out more of the plot and putting in more of you know, more of the fighting because that's all anyone cares about. Specifically, we're talking about Pacific Rim. Um, you know, let, let, less dialogue, more ro- robots fighting monsters. That's all anyone cares about. And so it's not hard to believe that when someone was putting together Highlander 3, the apology. Yeah, and, and you know what? Every, almost every single time a movie tries to do that with a franchise, the result is always that everyone hates it. You would think they'd learn. Almost, uni- almost uniformly. It, 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 and that baffles me. Is It's not even like you can look at it as a new concept and say, okay, well, it made sense on paper. They tried something different. No. No, every single time, every franchise has tried to go that route of cut back on the plot, add more action. It gets universally hated. Occasionally you get lucky and it manages to still make a metric butt ton of money. But just as often you get something that people go to and actually actually pretty much uniformly go, oh shit, that sucked. I wouldn't go see another movie and movie in that franchise. <clears throat> I mean I, I I don't I, I don't get how how bad does the short term memory have to be that people keep doing that. Well just to go back to this, I mean um, I'll, I'll go through the plot a little bit, but I don't feel like it's the you know it's the exact same movie made made over again. I do feel like it furthered his story a bit. Not a lot. Not 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 heaping loads where I you know where I'm going to come to this movie's defense any more than to say, I feel like this was still the continuing tales of Connor McLeod, you know, that he didn't just run through the same series of events all over again. Now, it's a minor thing. Um, and we were talking before the show about how the villain is Mario, Mario Van Peebles. His, his only direction in this movie seems to have been imitate the guy from the first movie, imitate that villain. Um so I know, so I can see why people feel the way they do about it, but I at least like the premise of this one—that you know he thought he won the prize, 
he thought it was all over, but it turns out there was an immortal, you know, um, trapped trapped in a mountainside that finally gets out and you know and, and the con- I actually thought that was a fun idea. Unfortunately, it's just carried out in the most lazy way possible. Uh, yeah, it it didn't have it didn't have a bad a, a bad opening. I mean, uh, of of course, I mean me being the geek that I am, you know, I I see somebody that I recognize from something else, and <clears throat> it's um it's impossible for me to not make the connection. So every time I I watch that opening sequence in ancient Japan, and I see um, Mako as the the titular sorcerer. I keep wanting I, I keep wanting to overdub that opening crawl, and instead of it be being Christopher Lambert's goofy ass accent, I keep wanting it to just say long ago in a distant land, Ayaku, the shape shifting master of darkness, unleashed an unspeakable evil. But a foolish Highland warrior carrying a magic fuck-off claymore sword stepped forth to oppose me. Before the final blow was struck, I tore open a portal in my neck and flung my electricity into Mario Van Peebles, where my evil is law. (laughs) Now the Frenchman aping a Scotsman seeks to return to my... return to the past and undo the future that is this shit. All right. Um, before I jump into the specific plot summaries, or anything more you wanted to add to your introduction of this shit fest? I just melded Samurai Jack into Highlander 3, the final dimension of the sorcerer magician, and it's still made for a more compelling idea for a plot than Islander the Quickening. <laughs> okay. All right. So, as uh, as Sean intimated, we begin in the 16th century. This is after the death of Connor's wife, Heather, uh, you know, the Scotch chick who uh, Kurgan raped and murdered. Um, Connor travels to Japan to request training from the immortal Japanese wait, sorcerer. Wait, 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 wait. wait. The, the, the Kurgan didn't murder. Wait, wait, wait. The Kurgan neither yeah. raped nor oh, no, murdered that's right. her. He just raped her. That's right. He just raped her. She died of natural. She, she no. died of He didn't rape her. I thought he did. No. Everything I've read. No. Basically. Well, well, no. Basically, um, basically, what happened was along came the Kurgan. Um, the Kurgan turned. The Kurgan lopped off Ramirez's head. I don't remember any point when he raped Heather, unless that was a plot point that was cut from the script. Yeah. I don't remember that at all. At the final act of Spike, the Kurgan, thinking she was with Ramirez, raped her. I can, I, can, I got it right here. I got the wiki open. The Kurgan raped Heather, but she kept the secret from uh, Connor. What's I don't. I have watched this movie a million times, and I don't remember that plot point. Yeah. I, okay. I, I, which, which, which? Which? Okay. Are, are, again, was this something that was cut from the script, or? 
Here's, okay, here's, on the wiki page, here's the history. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Married Connor McLeod in 1537. For some time in 1541, immortal Juan Sanchez Villa Lobos Ramirez. Every time I read that name, I think of the reporter for Married with Children. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lived with them to train Connor for the game. One night while Connor was absent, she witnessed Ramirez's death at the hands of another immortal, the Kurgan. After the quickening, the Kurgan raped Heather, but she kept this a secret from Connor. In 1555, Connor was warned that his mother, Callan McLeod, was to be killed by the clan McLeod. Heather expressed her disapproval to Connor's clansmen, not understanding why they could not leave Connor alone. Oh, you're talking about in this movie. No, it was... <laughs> they sent this in the first one. No, they... Okay, from the Wikipedia plot summary, the version that I remember. <clears throat> in the past, Connor lived an idyllic life with his wife, Heather. One day, the mysterious Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez appears and begins training Connor in sword fighting. He explains they both belong to a group of immortals who constantly fight one another but can only be killed by complete decapitation. When one immortal decapitates another, the winner receives a transfer of power called the Quickening. Eventually, all the immortals must do battle until there is only one left alive. The last survivor will receive the prize. Ramirez tells Connor that the Kurgan, by that time the strongest of the immortals, must not win the prize or mankind will enter a dark age. One night while Connor is away, the Kurgan attacks and decapitates Ramirez. Um, it then uh, skips back to the present a little, the present a little okay, bit, yep, and then... And, and then, yeah, and then it, it, and then the next time it references the past, it says, after this revelation, Brenda and Connor become lovers, although Connor is reluctant you know, following, he following Sean, he a flashback in which... Later in the movie, it, the Kirk, um, it doesn't say it in the wiki, but there's a part where Connor is sort of, uh, Connor, where the Kurgan is uh, teasing, not school children, but he's antagonizing Connor. You know, he's... Um, He's messing with them, and he actually brings up the whole thing about, you know, thinking she was with Ramirez, and uh, you know, he, yeah, he, uh, he brings up the whole rape. You had to have watched a different cut than I did, because I, because I have had, I have had that same DVD, um, for. Oh God, I, I I think I got it in I got it in like 2009, 2008 or something. I've watched it so many times I can't believe it still functioned. That never happened. Okay. I, you, I'm not going to oh, okay. argue I, I, about I, it. I I I think I need to see what version of it is on of it is on Hulu because I now I can't let this shit go. Um, oh, <laughs> well, folks, thank you for joining us. Um, let's see. Yeah, actually, ooh, and, oh, this is interesting. In one of the drafts of the original script, Heather doesn't even exist. Um, Connor is promised to a girl named Mara who rejects him when she learns he's immortal. Um, Connor leaves his village instead of being banished. His alias is Richard Tupin, and his custom is, and his weapon is a custom broadsword. Ramirez is a Spaniard born in 1100 instead of an ancient Egyptian born more than 2,000 years earlier. 
The Kurgan is known as the Knight, using the alias Carl William Smith. He's not a savage, but a cold-blooded killer. And Brenda is instead Brenna Cartwright. Um, and also, originally, Immortals could have children in the draft. Connor is said to have had 37 uh, in a flashback okay. in the first just, draft. Just Connor one thing really quick. I went through yeah. the Highlander wiki, and the footnote that talks about Kurgan raping her links back to the Highlander film. Am I, like, existing on Earth 2 here where I saw a different version? I mean, it's, it's like it's like fucking Elizabeth DeWitt tore open a tear instead of ending up in Paris, France, where George Lucas never changed the, never changed the name of Return of the Jedi. I've, like, wandered into some world where that's another, where that's another cut of Highlander. I'm not talking it's bad. I'm just saying... I'm just saying that has never happened. I, I have now. I I feel like I've presented enough evidence to say that it has. You're gonna have to let. Son of a bitch! One of you people that's on Facebook, would you chime in here, please? Somebody <laughs> ensure me that ensure me that I did not dose on some bad Nashville recently. Hang on. This this is now from the Highlander wiki on the Highlander film. Okay. <laughs> Later, Connor goes to church. This sounds like a Curious George book. Later, Connor goes to his yearly remembrance of his promise to Heather, but his reflections are disturbed by the Kurgan, gloating in the death of Castigar. They are the last, and the Kurgan has every intention of taking Connor's head and the prize. He mocks Connor. That's what I was looking for, mocking. Um, telling him, and now listen to this, okay? Don't jump, don't, don't interrupt. Listen, put your listening ears on. Telling him how he mocks. Are you listening? I'm listening. God damn it! He mocks Connor, telling him how Ramirez died on his knees and how he raped quote his woman unquote. Connor's reaction tells him that his long-held belief that she was she was Ramirez's woman was wrong. The Kurgan gloats believing that he has wounded Connor, but he soon realizes that all he has done is light a fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. Try to set the night on fire under McLeod. Proud of yourself for that, are you? Okay, I, I'm, going to the, I'm going to the IMDb page. I'm going... Let's see. Um, do I want plot summary or plot so synopsis? I think it's a I sincerely apologize. Let's see here. Um, okay, uh, Brenda. Uh, let's see. Okay, good. This one. This one at least has the flashbacks in italics. Um, we'll trigger the gathering last and get to the Kurgan, who's really be the oldest and strongest. Uh, let's see here. Connor also learns that all immortals are sterile. Here's how Heather. Mears really has been married three times in his third. I'm going to remember any of that. Um, uh, I, don't remember, I don't remember anything about a Japanese princess. Um, depending on where the Highlander is, Mears like, yes, you know, him. Heather approaches him, and he's dead, but he grabs her. What version have I been watching? 
Okay, that I remember. That scene was fucking hilarious. Um, Connor's at a church now, and he didn't realize that Heather was actually Connor's wife in it. I kid you not. I have only ever watched one version of this movie, and that shit was not in it. So Sean's been watching the G-rated version for children. Oh, fuck you until the handle breaks on. It damn sure wasn't G-rated. Um, Can I get on with this now? What? This was a valid discussion, and now my and now my reality is being torn asunder here. Okay. I don't even I don't even I don't even get cool neat little tears with lighthouses that I can use to go under the sea. Go make yourself old some tea. Times. Go make yourself some tea so I can get to the plot summary, please. All right. So anyway. Uh, it's 16th, it's 16th century, and after uh, Connor's wife Heather has been raped and then died of old age, Connor travels to Japan from the immortal Japanese doctor Bull Nakano. Bull Nakano holds his residence in the cave of Mount Miri <laughs> and has gained the reputation of the master of illusion. However, another immortal named Kane, these are straight names, this is now Mario Van Peebles, is also interested in mastering the power of illusion. He makes his way across Asia in order to reach Nakano again, and the two henchmen in tow, Kublai Khan and and, uh, Sengi Khan, enter um, enter a nearby village village seeking information. They proceed to burn it to the ground and massacre its population. And eventually, eventually, they reach (laughs) Nakano's cave. Um, it's Kane, Kane and Bolacano. Suddenly, you're writing a WWE fanfic. <laughs> so Kane and Nakano square off, and Nakano shows off his uh, his ability to create illusion. However, um, Kane defeats him anyway and takes his magic, becoming the master of illusion himself. However, in doing so, once he gets the quickening, he ends up closing a cave in, and he's trapped in the mountain. McLeod gets away. So, so wait, 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 wait. Hang, hang on, hang on. So, Mako actually did play a shape-shifting Japanese master sorcerer. More or less. Fuck it. Suddenly I just want to go watch Samurai Jack now. Who's with me? (laughs) We've got 30 minutes left, and you can do whatever you want. Killjoy. All right, so we move to the 18th century, more or less. Uh, 1788-89, Connor's in France. He, may, he meets Sarah Barrington, who is an English woman visiting relatives there who happens to resemble um, Alex Johnson, who's currently living in 1994, and she will be the one to discover the cave that Kane is in, who will then escape and proceed to go after the um, So... There's this whole thing here with the French Revolution, and there's another immortal who um, who gets the uh, the French to believe that he's really McLeod, and so they end up executing him, and McLeod gets away again. Um, 
All right. So in modern day, 1994, Connor is living with his adopted son, John, in Marrakesh. It is revealed mm-hmm. that back in 1987, Brenda Wyatt, who is a love interest um, from the first movie, the woman he married after the gathering was killed in a car accident. Peeled off the pavement she had to be, is what they said, as a matter of fact. Although he, he survived the accident himself, he still believes that the game is over. Meanwhile, in Japan, as I said before, um, Alex Johnson uh, discovers the cave. They end up um, they end up bringing uh, Kane. Kane goes after McLeod. Um, McLeod leaves John in the care of his friend Jack Donovan and then departs for New York City to engage in the final showdown for the prize. So he didn't get the prize in the first movie. That's what we learn here that he didn't know there was still an immortal out there, which is not, which is a running gag with these movies, is that they, they think that, you know, that when, when, when we get to the uh, penultimate fight, that that's going to be the last one. And then, oh, no, there was an immortal in hiding somewhere, and, you know, in Anne Frank's basement or some shit. Anyway, Surely uh, this time I got the last one, and there could not possibly be anybody left. <laughs> oh, but lo, there was. Um, another uh, holdover from the previous movie, Again, making this a further uh, further story in the life of McLeod is that the uh, detective remembers the 1985 quote unquote headhunter case. Now, if you don't remember from the first movie, uh, McLeod slash Nash cut off an immortal's head in a parking lot after watching the fabulous Freebirds uh, at <laughs> Madison Square Garden. See, um, and they never they never found the guy that did it. See, and this time, God damn it, they're gonna nail him to the wall. See. <laughs> they're going to they're pin it on him, see? Lieutenant John Sten, he's the man of the hour. He wants to pin it on Russell Nash, see? Um, uh, then more, and more of the same from the first movie. They, you know, they have a couple of skirmishes here and there. Uh, Alex ends up finding more about McLeod, you know, realizing that he's an immortal and all this other stuff. Um, another thing where uh, they're, you know, where they are, confront each other on holy ground, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this time around, Kane kidnaps the son, who is sent to New York accidentally, apparently, um, and he uses the son as bait to get McLeod to come after him for the final showdown. Uh, they fight, 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 fight. McLeod wins, <laughs> and he was, you know, and he uh, this time they think for sure, surely this time he wins the prize. And so he returns to Scotland with Alex and John to live out the rest of his natural life until the fourth movie. I just just love how the freaking no reason to exist in this movie, adopting kid, well, correct me, (laughs) as one reason, one reason only to exist, um, just gets mistakenly shipped shipped off to New York. Um, like he like, like he's somebody somebody's misplaced copy of Eat Pray Love that got ordered from Amazon and sent to the wrong apartment. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's clearly I mean they sh- instead of naming him John they should have named him Pig Hostage, possibly B. Yeah. How 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 do you have a shipping error with a small child? How does that happen? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, but. I mean, like I said, there there are obviously a lot of repeat beats uh, in The Sorcerer. Uh, Mario Van Peebles overacting is hilarious. Uh, this, this might, 
the problem is a lot of the charm of Ker- of the guy who played Kurgan's overacting is really lost in this movie because again it's just Mario Van Peebles doing a bad impression. Well, no, the, the the bigger difference is is the fact that um, what you have here is you have the difference between Robert England acting in Nightmare on Elm Street or Wes Craven's New Nightmare versus Robert England being just a pure pork product in The Dream Child. Uh, in the first in the first movie, what made it work for Clancy Brown was he could look as patently ridiculous as he wanted to because he brought presence to the role. Um, it was the way he carried himself, the way he delivered the lines, with, with just the right sort of sadistic menace that he was overacting, but at the same time, he was intimidating enough that you bought him as the villain. Um, in this one, Mario Van Peebles, it's more like he's acting with the... like he's badly aping Clancy Brown's delivery in the first movie, but with all the personality of the two dumb shit henchmen from Highlander 2. <laughs> You know what kills me? Mario Van Peebles is not a great actor, but he's still like, I mean, he's got quite the career. I mean, he was he's oh, been yeah. on he's been on Nashville as, as of recently. Um, you know, the last couple of movies that he did, uh, he was in Mantervention, Red Sky, American Warships. He's got uh, he's got he's got some really good directing credits. Um, he's actually directing mm-hmm. USS Indianapolis: Men of Courage that comes out next year. Um, he's directed an episode of Empire, Once Upon a Time, Nashville, Zero Hour, and CIS. I mean, you know, for a guy who sucks, dude, he he directed an episode of Law of Sons of Anarchy. You know what? I'm actually kind of glad you mentioned directing because it reminds me of one other thing that's a big difference between the two. With the first movie, you had Russell Mulcahy, who brought a background in music videos and some really innovative, daring approaches to both editing and shooting it. Took that, combined it with a fantastically imaginative, if at times pretty severely flawed story, and managed to make something that had a lot of fun and charm that really holds up pretty well with a sheer enjoyment factor. Um, This one, on the other hand, it's it's just a generic mid-90s action movie with swords. Apparently he has done so little that he doesn't even have his own Wikipedia page. Uh, you, you don't have the, uh, the added pizzazz of a soundtrack from Queen. Instead, we get, well, hell, we don't even have Stuart Copeland's soundtrack from the second movie. In this one, we instead just get J. Peter Robinson, where again the most imaginative yeah. thing they could come up come up with for ambiance was, hey, I know, let's stage the final fight between K- between Kane and Connor to an instrumental of Doctor Feelgood. It was like well, watching get, a WCW Nitro main event. Well, you also get Bluebeard by the Cocteau Twins. Wow. <laughs> 
there, there's your highlight soundtrack, folks. No, no princes of the universe. No, who wants to live forever? No, Freddie Mercury, absolute, absolutely sweetly destroying New York, New York. Nope, none of that. You will get half-ass Motley Crue and like it. <laughs> And you know what? It damn sure didn't get any better. Because after this, it's Highlander Endgame. This is a thing that happened. Mark, still there, buddy? I'm going to guess Mark had to go pee. So... I no, just Matt, I got stupid Skype. Oh. Uh, okay, there you are. <laughs> so, Highlander Endgame. Okay, I think. Um, I, 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 are you telling me we have reached the conclusion of the story? There's nothing more to say. <sighs> I'm gonna agree with you. We have yeah, good way. Good way to put it because this is this is a completely. Absolutely unnecessary. The the only reason for this thing to exist was the fact that for reasons that to this day baffle me, except for the fact that this was the golden age of syndicated television, uh, the Highlander TV series somehow took off. And so they decided that the thing to do was to inexplicably merge Duncan McLeod and Connor McLeod with only the most minimal explanation as to the relation between the two and why they would have anything to do with each other, aside from the fact they're both named. Um, well, see, that's into... the thing. That's a good premise on paper. If I'm a producer and you're like, we have the, you know, hey, we have these three uh, Highlander movies, two of which are the worst things ever put to, to celluloid, um, but then we made this television show and it fucking, you know, went on for six seasons and was, and was blockbuster – Let's do a movie where we put Kirk and Picard together. And I, as a producer, I'm like, yeah, that only makes sense. Problem is you actually have mm-hmm. to make the movie good and not boring as fuck. Or put the yeah. cast in, in, in a feelings cloud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, can you explain <sighs> to the audience a little bit about the television show? Because... If you haven't watched the television show, Highlander Endgame makes little to no sense and bored the fuck out of me. You know what? I hadn't planned on it, but let me kind of pull the wiki up so I can do it as best I'm as best I'm able to. Um, I guess I can set this up a little bit by pointing out that when it came out, when I call it the golden age of syndicated television, no, seriously, I mean it. Um, this was at a time when there were a lot of syndicated shows floating around that were not necessarily good in the classical sense. Occasionally you ran across one that was moderately watchable in a popcorn, turn your brain off kind of way. But a lot of them were fun in the so bad they're good kind of sense. Um, You had shows like, well, obviously... You know, 
Baywatch was the lord and master of them all. This was when Baywatch was pretty much at the height of its power. Um, but in the periphery of that, you had stuff like Renegade starring Lorenzo Lamas. Um, you had Forever Night. Uh, later on down the line, you had The Crow, Stairway to Heaven, which starred My Spirit Animal and Yours, Mark Dacascos. Um And in fact, several of these shows ended up doing pretty well because I remember at one point, uh, USA Network, in the days before they were really well well known for Knock Your Socks Off original series, uh, just managed to pick up like two or three of them at the same time. And they just, I remember one summer, just put all of their advertising, all their muscle behind co-promoting Renegade and Highlander as joining their we their weekly um uh primetime lineup. But this show in particular is just kind of a minor retcon of the original of the original film in which Connor McCloud did not win the did not win the prize. Um he um he kind of reprised his role his role in the pilot episode, but instead it focuses on Duncan McLeod, who is an immortal who the same Scottish High, Scottish Highlanders who found and raised Connor generations before also took him in and raised him. So they're basically adoptive brothers. That's really about it. They don't Share, they don't share a bloodline, a bloodline at all. Um, hell, I mean, Duncan is for all for all intents, intents and purposes Parisian. Um, uh, the general history of the show is um, he's kind of settled into life as once more an antique dealer uh, with his girlfriend uh, Tessa Noel. Um, uh, he has kind of, uh, I guess you could call him sort of an apprentice little but little buddy named Richie, um, who's a thief who stumbles upon Duncan's shop and witnesses a confrontation between him, between him and another immortal played by the awesome Richard Maul, um, as well as Connor McLeod. Um, at this point, Duncan has been alive for the almost four hundred almost 400 years, lots of the same themes. Uh, uh, Connor can sense an an immortal, no fighting on holy ground. Kill an immortal, you, you know, absorb their their power. Uh, There's a lot more globe-trotting in this one. one. Um, Lots of focus on relationships, much more so than on the awesome badass sword fighting. Uh, lots of flashbacks, complete with you know imitation of the Highlander transition. Uh, many many Highlander swooshes. The opening theme for the show was "Princes of the Universe." Um, did I really leave anything out, Mark? Did I kind of nail everything? That sounds good to me. Except that yeah, I didn't think. Um, well, hang on. Didn't the television show also deal with the sanctuary and the watchers? Which again, if you don't know what that is, this fucking movie won't explain it to you. 
Uh, yeah, it did. I mean, they just, they really tried to just smush them right together. I mean, put it this way. When I watched this movie, I did not remember necessarily everything about what tied the show and the first movie together. So I had to look up everything I just told you about Duncan or Connor because none of that is explained. When you first meet them, you just stumble upon them because, well, Duncan's getting a hot dog. No, <laughs> seriously, that's your that's your introduction. They're just shooting the shit, and Connor's all worked up about something, and uh, Duncan is pissed about the quality of condiments on condiments on his dog. And um, was it just was it just me? Was it just me, man, or did did Lambert's acting in this movie just get flat out fucking weird? Like disjointed, weird. Like, really, that was the emotion you're going with. See, it's it's very hard for me to say one way or the other because as God is my witness, about about 45 minutes into it, I just fucking gave up and had my back to it until something interesting happened. Like, I I I, I literally left the movie finished playing because saying that I watched it would be an overstatement. <clears throat> Yeah, I didn't really pay much attention to it either. I mean, I, I was I was a little rushed because um, a, a little not so interesting fun fact: four one one Mania's Tony Acero happened to be uh, bopping around Phoenix on some business today, and he messaged me at one at one point while I was working. said he was in said he was in Scottsdale. Uh, wanted to know what I was up to. I said, well, you know, I'm just kind of hanging out at Starbucks, working in Tempe all day today. So if you want to come hang out for a hang out for a little bit, hey man, you're welcome to. So yeah, he stopped, we chatted, we chatted a while, and then I didn't remember until he left. Oh yeah, I still have a Highlander movie and a half that I have to watch. Fuck me. Um. So ultimately, I kind of watched the rest of this one. Um. I kind of care about things that happened in it that led to other things. No, 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 I really, really don't. Uh, I really do not give a shit. Not, not single one, not one single solitary fuck. Um, Here's the only thing that jumped out about me about Highlander Endgame, and that is this was very much like Star Trek Generations in the sense that you had the old guy passing it on to the new guy, uh, even, and they have a villain that's, that's too strong for either one of them, so... McLeod ends up sacrificing himself to Duncan by having Duncan chop off his head and take his energy uh, so that he can then go and defeat the, the, the villain that is Jacob Kell. Now, that's, now if, if, if you come to me as a producer um, and say, you know, producer Rattledge, I don't know why you would call me that, but if you would say producer Rattledge, I have this really cool idea kind of take the Highlander series to the next level with this new guy, Adrian Paul, and, you know, he'll be, you know, he'll be the new Highlander from which we can base an all new bunch of films on um, after the success of the television show. Okay. So, and so we're going to, so, so it's going to build up to this final sequence that starts with McLeod sacrificing himself on Duncan's behalf. Okay. I love it. What's the road to get there? Some whiny Mm -hmm. fucking thing that I didn't understand. There's this, there's a sanctuary, and then there's watchers, 
and at some point someone had a beard, and um, I, and I and, and I feel like Hell killing McLeod's mother, and I, how did we get from there to here? So yeah, I um, I, you know I, what? I my, don't understand my... what the Watchers do or what the point. I mean, I, I get the point that the, the, that the immortals go into the sanctuary so that they're not killed and no one can get the prize, and that for some odd reason the Watchers think this is a great idea and want to be a part of it. It's never explained, or at least not to not to anyone I can understand it. My my kind of big deal about it is is I felt like if you're going to have and this and this goes for any time you're going to have kind of a torch passing moment between characters. You should build it up to be a big deal when they finally cross paths. Um, there should be something that lends some intrigue uh, to to that moment. Uh, one of my favorite examples um, in uh, Green Lantern Rebirth, um, you have basically the first time that. Kyle Rayner and Hal Jordan have met after Hal has been fully resurrected as the as the Green Lantern. Um, it's a big moment because you've built up their separate journeys throughout the story until finally you've brought them to you know kind of a vanishing point on the horizon where on the horizon where they meet and. <clears throat> You, and you have that moment where, uh, you know, Kyle has, you know, Hal has saved Kyle and Oliver Queen from Sinestro, and Sinestro has been fully has been fully dealt with, and they meet with, you know, a handshake, and that kind of ushers in the next chapter. Um, you don't really have that here. Like I said, just no explanation. If you are not familiar with the TV series and you're not familiar with that lore, you're coming into this movie completely lost as to its significance. Yeah. Um, because, again, you're just starting these two out on a little mandate. They're, they're just two dudes in New York out to get a hot dog. Um. I'm, I'm well, watching it going, this is it. Well, this is what whole, you went with. Even the whole sacrifice scene, it just feels like it comes out of nowhere. Um, and there's no there's no real emotion to it. I mean, you, you, know, you follow Connor McCloud in his previous three movies, and you should be sad when he goes. And, when he, and, when, and I remember watching this, and I, and I was distracted, mind you, but... Still, I turned around when I suddenly realized the two were facing off at each other. And when he cuts his head off, I was like, I feel nothing here. And at least, you know, like, mm-hmm. I guess, silly as the Phantom menaces, um, at least when Darth Maul uh, ends up killing Qui-Gon, the whole setup to that was, was at least interesting. They were doing, if you'll remember, they were doing the thing where you had the periodic force fields that were separating everybody. Mm-hmm. And up to that point, oh, yeah, the, yeah. The, they had the two Jedi's keeping Darth Maul at bay. You know, as long as it was two on one, they you know, they, they sort of had him. But then they got separated, and Darth Maul was able to overcome Qui Gon, and there was nothing Obi Wan could do about it. He just kind of stood there and watched. 
Um, yeah, yeah. So it, it's one of the more powerful scenes of the Phantom Menace, which didn't exactly have a lot of competition in that movie, but still, uh, <laughs> no. it, 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 it's a scene that works, it, you know, and it's a sacrifice that works. And at least that, you know, that got a little emotional, even though, you know, you weren't really connected to Qui-Gon for anything more than that movie. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, hell, I get, I get the feeling that when, uh, when you and I, respectively, are sitting in theaters and we're watching episode seven, um, I get the feeling that sometime along the lines and it, uh, during episode seven, eight, and nine, we're, we're going to see some torch-passing moments kind of like that. And I really hope to God that J.J. Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan have the sense to conduct them better than that. Um, and I, well, I, and I think I think like Dan Solo is going to buy the farm in Episode Seven, and I am going to be weeping like a, like a woman. Well, right, but you know, but uh, kind of when you think about Abrams, especially, and especially when you think about how he handled kind of uh, the two Spocks in the first Star Trek, mm-hmm. especially, um, you know, you get the impression that he's a guy that has a sense of the gravity. Of, uh, of what he's shooting and what it means to the story and what it's going to mean to the audience. Um, and I, I, I get the feeling we're probably going to have um, moments like that in, well, in the Marvel franchise. That's another good example. Um, you're going to have moments where when the time finally comes, when the main cast of you know the first uh, couple phases is ready to say, okay, uh, respectively, we've, we've played these characters about enough. I think it's time we ride off into the sunset. Well, yeah, there, there's going to be some meaningful moments where, you know, like uh, Chris Evans uh, kind of passes the torch off to Anthony, to Anthony Mackey. Um, uh, because th- those, those, things are, those things are pivotal. And you just don't handle it by just Oh look! Here's two characters from two completely different universes. They're having snacks. <laughs> yeah. So the short short of this, in the interest of time, was they had a good idea for a torch passing moment, which this entire film hinges on, and it was handled with all yeah. the emotion of an autistic child taking a nap. So with that said, um, I, think, I think I think we're done here with, with the Highlander. Please don't make any more of these movies. Um, they're, they're just remember the first one, enjoy the first one, laugh at the other three, um, and forget that the fifth one exists. And then go watch the television show. It's on Amazon Prime. You can rent every season. It's fantastic. Oh, for for, lo- for the love of God, skip the television show. Oh, really? It's, it's, it's about the nicest thing I can say about it is it's well shot and it sometimes has a decent soundtrack that's about that's about it otherwise it's, I, I it's pretty much bullshit anyone that watched it at the time um that, that were among my friends actually told me that it was one of the best shows on tv at the time okay again though you you have to remember that i mean that I will say this. It had it had some great guest stars. I mean, if you're willing to geek out at the fact that at various points you're going to come across the likes of Joan Jett, Vanity, Roger Daltrey, Richard Mall, Tracy Lord, Sheena Easton, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Nia Peoples, Ray Don Chong, Eric McCormick, Sandra Bernhardt, and Ron Perlman, then 
by all means, watch away. What the hell ever. <laughs> um, but but other but otherwise, you're really better off just watching one version or another of the first movie and forgetting that the remaining ones exist. Why did I? Why do I not remember that? Are you back on the rape thing? I'll get over it. Well, you're getting over it. Let's go over uh, the schedule here. Uh, next Wednesday, we've added a movie to the movie review schedule. Robert Winfrey and I will be reviewing uh, Matt Damon, The Martian. Uh, so that'll be fun. I'll be going to see that Friday night. We'll review it this Wednesday, October 7th. Um, on Thursday, The Metal Hammer of Doom is back, and we'll be reviewing the new Clutch album, Psychic Warfare. I've heard the first four tracks from it. Uh, five tracks from it. It's fucking amazing. Clutch hit one out of the ballpark again. Um, on the 14th of October, we'll be reviewing the movie, uh, the, the Peter Pan prequel. Pan. <laughs> Live action, by the way, not animated. And then Sean and I will be back on October 15th, and we'll be reviewing the first two Jaws movies. Yes, Jaws and Jaws 2. So right here on the long road to ruin. Um, I've heard word that I am not the shark in Benjamin Cologne's uh, artistic portrayal of Jaws. I am not. It was suggested I should be the shark, but apparently he had already had an idea. So I don't know. It's probably, I've, I've seen it. It is brilliant. And I, I just have to chuckle at who he decided to make you. Well, since I haven't seen the movie yet, it won't mean to me until I watch these things. Um, so then, uh, on the, now on the 21st, I actually won't be reviewing movies with Robert. Robert Winfrey and Jason Teasley will be reviewing Crimson Peak. And the next night, uh, on the Metal Hammer of Doom, Robert Cooper and I will be reviewing Thrust on Bluff, The Wanderer, on what the new album comes out between now and then. And then finally, on uh, October 28th, our Halloween episode... We'll be doing a split seven-inch. I'll be reviewing Gem and the Holograms on the same episode that Robert Winfrey will be reviewing Paranormal Activities, The Ghost Dimension. And we'll see which one was more horrifying. And then Sean and I I will be closing up October, for October, as it were, um, with Jaws 3 and 4. Shortly after that... uh, the following week for another back-to-back episode. Um, Sean and I will be looking at the Daniel Craig Bond movies. That'll be November 5th. So that's enough for now. We'll, uh, we'll go into a little bit more as the time goes on. Um, but we've got, yeah, we've got Jaws, and then we've got two more shows, uh, three more shows left after that, and that's going to be it for the year. Our final show of the year will be December 3rd. Um, so we hope you'll join us for all those shows. Um, I hope you come back to listen to us talk about Jaws. I've never seen it, so it'll be interesting. In the meantime, oh, you're Sean, you got anything going on? Oh, just a few things now that I'm kind of coming out of my shell for a little bit. Um, I am not really back on Twitter yet. However, you can always come drop me a line on Facebook. Look me up at Sean Comer. Do not go to the account that has the Commander Shepard pick. Um, uh, the account that I'm on most op- that I'm on most often is the one that has actually a daily revolving avatar. Uh, I've been going. 
been running through all 13 doctors lately, and if you were to go right now, uh, you would find a picture of David Tennant king over a cubicle wall. So that's me if you feel like dropping me a line there. Um, I am not doing much entertainment blogging these days. However, coming up this February, um, I have got a brand new podcast I'm going to be debuting alongside two new members of the Rod Election Broadcasting family. My good friend Jeremy Hulsoff, you might remember him from joining us for Litchfield Live to talk about Season 3 of Orange is the New Black. And introducing the brand new and charming and sweet and absolutely wonderful Anne Alberti. Uh, we are going to be putting together just kind of a nice catch-all geek news review and chat show that we are calling The Power of Three. Yes, it is a charmed reference. And, yes, we are going to be talking about the charm rule at some point on that on that show. Um, that is going to be coming sometime probably long, about mid-February. I'm going to be moving in December and then uh, getting settled in after Christmas vacation in January. So I want to give myself about another six weeks to really get into my new digs before I start producing anything new. In the meantime, uh, oh, coming up this uh, coming up on one of the first editions of Source Material this October, uh, you can tune in and find myself and title card artist extraordinaire Benjamin J. Pallone and Jesse Starcher. We are going to be talking about one of my all-time favorite Batman stories, The Long Halloween. And I imagine probably diving maybe just a little bit into uh, the trilogy that kind of followed from it, which includes um, Dark Victory and Catwoman when in Rome. And so that's it. That's my ever-increasing, ever more busy, ever more busy schedule. Otherwise, I will be popping up on the Rodelich and Broadcast Network whenever, network, network, uh, whenever I have time. So until we meet again, muchachos, um, never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. Folks, it's been a pleasure. It's been a small slice of heaven. Be well, be safe, and behave, and most importantly. Since this is the Halloween season, go fall in love with the monster.